0: Hello and welcome to CQ Speaks. I'm Colin DeKesheter, and on today's program we're doing our first of hopefully many retrospectives on the Carolina Quarterly. Joining me to discuss the first issue is the Carolina Quarterly's nonfiction editor, Joe Clefdahl. Joe, welcome and thanks for being here.
1: Happy to be here, Colin.
0: So the Carolina Quarterly uh, has an interesting publishing history, operating under different names going back all the way to 1844. But today we're only concerned with the Carolina Quarterly proper, which released its first issue in 1948. I know, Joe, that Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Paul Green caught your attention. Do you mind telling us a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I actually encountered Paul Green uh, for the first time when I was doing a little bit of work on Contempo magazine, which was a small experimental literary magazine uh, that really only ran for two or three years in the early 1930s uh, in Chapel Hill. But Paul Green was a big contributing force behind that. Uh, It was run by two students who eventually dropped out of UNC Chapel Hill, uh, which is something I always like to hear, Um, but he was actually uh, really encouraged them to start this project, and it was a fairly radical, or framed itself as a fairly radical leftist magazine intent on trying to publish voices that weren't typically heard, so they had Langston Hughes poems, they wrote about various lynchings at the time, and that's how it kind of got its start. Initially, Green had promised to write a lot for Contempo, and that actually never really happened. But he was always kind of uh, there and exchanged a lot of letters with Milton Abernathy and Anthony Butita, who were Hmm. the editors.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I knew none of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So in the issue, we sort of see two sides of Paul Green, the writer in his essay, Custodians of Greatness, some notes on the movies. Mm -hmm. And then later on, as subject in Agatha Boyd Adams's Paul Green, Poet playwright. And his essay is interesting for many reasons. I wonder if it is radical um, (laughs) or just rhetorical, but maybe the best place to begin is to ask you your thoughts on the piece generally.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is really interesting to me because Green actually did go to Hollywood in the 1930s. I think 1932 he moved to Hollywood. He was asked to go to write screenplays. Um, And he did go and he did write screenplays, and he was always very dissatisfied with the actual artistic quality of like the product that came out so what's interesting to me about custodians of greatness is that it's so optimistic uh for something that is also you know he is cynical about it you know at the end Mm -hmm. he's saying (laughs) he says like all the ways that the movies are failing um but at the same time he does seem to have this like Really? And I'm not quite sure where he does get this utopian view that the machine age is what will bring about equality. Yeah. Because I think now in the machine age we have found
0: Right. No. Yeah, uh, it doesn't. He's a little bit like um uh almost late to the game with Mm -hmm. that kind of terminology. Like nineteen forty and the rhetoric itself, it sounds like it was written in like the nineteen, like early nineteen hundreds, and not moving into the fifties.
1: It's so true. I was thinking about this in the in conjunction with um, Walter Benjamin or like Siegfried Kracauer, mm-hmm. who are writing early twentieth century and are really complicating the idea of what like political emancipation looks like for film. Mm-hmm. Um, and this coming after the war, it almost is like, I mean, because yeah, Siegfried Kracauer and Walter Benjamin are writing before and on the cusp of World War Two. Green has this really interesting he says at his last paragraph is the war has changed many things and there's hope even in this. So I wonder if this is partially also a little bit of hopeful leveling mm-hmm. out in the in the wake of World War II where like actually to complicate things is feels unethical. I don't know, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We should definitely talk about the ethics of it, but I also was curious about if the uh, editors of the magazine at the time asked him to write something in this vein, because the journal as a whole has this like youthful, male aspirational rhetoric behind mm-hmm. it. Like the first words that we get um, from in the magazine is from something called a literary revival by Hardin Craig, who apparently was a widely known Shakespearean authority. Um, begins his essay saying, "Perhaps no informed and experienced observer of cultivated society could adduce any very convincing reasons for believing mm-hmm. that." Except in groups and small areas, there are any signs of a renaissance in our country or that except in many individual minds and hearts, there is any probability of an American renaissance in the future of any nationwide scale. (laughs) (laughs) And it gets a lot stranger um, saying that UNC will be the heart of a a literary revival. Mm -hmm. Um, So that seems to be the vein that the paper is working in. And so when I got to Green's essay, I was like, oh, he's just doing exactly what the journal wants him to do. And so there's something, like, not very radical about that, in in a sense.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if also partially, uh, so yeah, it seems very much working in the vein of the general trajectory of, of this issue, um, but I wonder if there's something where there's a feeling of it being revolutionary because it's talking about a different media. I mean, still at this point, I think writing seriously about film and the more popular genres of entertainment wasn't... Seen as serious, so right. I wonder if there's, like, the tiniest bit of revolutionary thinking there, uh, where it's, in some ways, just trying to throw it out, yeah. and just being like, oh, but it's a, well if we, what if we talk about movies, um, <laughs> rather than just staying on literature, so yeah, I don't know, but it does also seem like he hasn't read very much about film, yeah. you know, like, in general, so...
0: Yeah, there's sort of a weird like paradox when he's talking about like all the social good that movies can do. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really realize that providing what he calls the froth and shine might be a social good, right. uh, especially after the war. But yeah, so maybe that's touching on the ethical thing. But what did you think just like about the ethics generally of what he's talking about?
1: Yeah, well, so one thing that really caught me, and I'll just read this for everyone, mm-hmm. is he says, The all-hearing ear, the all-seeing eye, and the sensitive modern camera have made it and that would be equality, possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is something that is... It is hard not to think about that now and not be deeply disturbed. <laughs> and so I think that there is something about this where it's its hoping that movies can capture it all mm-hmm. in some way. And that seems very interesting after World War II. Yeah. Um, and that seems like something that is concerning is concerning for me this idea that the machine age will be total and that things can be captured totally and fully understood and and that totality will will make equality right is something that I think is what he's working with in this piece and has many scary implications and even at that time (laughs) it sounds like fascism right so so yeah and I think so yeah that would be that was one of my initial thoughts on
0: that I mean the essay is also weird because I, I said earlier a um youthful rhetoric of aspiration but there's a weird sense that the evils have already been done and -hmm. there are they can't really be fixed he says as i said before the emotional and imaginative reaction on the part of the bobby Soxers and children has already occurred and the character forming power has already been received into the psychic apparatus let's call it spiritual nature of the child and begun its subversive loosening and corrupting of his thinking and morals Mm -hmm. So do you get a sense that he wants to reverse that, or he kind of wants to throw the medium out <laughs> as a whole?
1: Yeah, or, like, travel through to the other side. Yeah. You know, like, just go, go straight through it. The, the idea of, like, the good... Because this, actually, the rule that you... This is the end of... He lists his rules mm-hmm. for what cinema has taught us, and it's all the bad things that cinema does. And so this is what you just read is at the end of Rule E, and he starts out with saying it's all right to appear bad throughout most of the picture, and I do feel like this bad and good, which is really how he's proposing, like mm-hmm. there's good that could come from cinema, but right now it is bad. And so I think I think he wants to reverse it. I think he's unsure about how to do that except for just naming the things, mm-hmm. you know, kind of this idea of, it's almost like psychoanalytical where if you can just recognize it and name it, then it will disappear and <laughs> right. work its way out. But also, I'm stuck with the fact that he is relying on the idea that the machine yeah. is equitable. Yeah. And that in some way we need to give the machine the control to just see. And if and if we can just let the machine see, then that's enough. So in, in that way, it's almost like he wants to Throw out the old type of cinema or film that is relying on like human pointedness and just wants to like let the camera run. Yeah, Um,
0: let the camera run and uh, yeah, the nation will fix itself. Right,
1: (laughs) right, exactly. This way of like, oh, if we just see the things, and I think this is actually thinking about this now in the in the wake of World War Two does make sense because i think there was something like if we just see how bad it was then that will translate to understanding right and then it's also kind of deeply optimistic because it's thinking oh and if people can see and really see and really understand then we won't do continue to do this anymore things will change um and i think now i mean especially i'm thinking a lot about the way this works and you know we can think about photos of, like, concentration camps and stuff that are now people are totally inured to. Um, But there was this idea, oh, if we can just show. Yeah. You know, if we, like, if the witness can be disseminated, that solves the problem.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and it has me thinking about what Agatha Boyd Adams called Green's interest in realism. Uh, But even that term seems a little complicated by her essay. Uh, Can you speak at all to Green's interest in realism and how it might have differed between theater and film?
1: Yeah, Big question. (laughs) From what I've read about Green, it is interesting to see him as a realist. I think, in what we're talking about with his idea about movies and the camera, it seems like there is this desire for realism and just letting the machine show us the way things are, and the machine is equitable. Mm -hmm. But I do think his interest in theater was in some ways very experimental. Mm-hmm. So he he was very interested in incorporating music and different lighting effects. And so conceptualizing him as a realist playwright seems interesting because he did, especially later in his career, seem to move uh, more towards wanting to be more symbolist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this happened after he did go to Europe for a little while. And met Gertrude Stein actually here thanks to Contempo magazine. And he was very inspired by Yiddish theater and kind of the non-representational aspects of it and the deep interest in music and symbolism mm-hmm. in it. And so I think in that way, it seems like it's kind of moving away from his idea of film. Like maybe the, the world of film is to show things how they really are. And then the world of theater is to do something else. Yeah. And that's the poetic world for yeah. him. So on his his interest in Yiddish theater... The Agatha Boyd Adams piece does say that he was drawn... So this is talking about... Green actually ended up making what he called symphony theater or like the symphony play, symphonic play. Mm -hmm. And she cites this as, this was significant in his enthusiasm for the musicalized, stylized, unreal quality of the Yiddish theater. Towards some such quality, he strives in the plays with music And some of their apparent obscurity may derive from the fact that they have been given realist rather than stylized productions. So this is where she takes it in the direction Uh of realist, but I wonder why. And I think he did have issues with the reception of some of his plays that moved from more realist representations to then breaking things down. There was one where he staged it in three acts, and the last act was by far the most experimental. But it didn't do well. People weren't super thrilled about it, so they redid it hmm. um, to be more realist.
0: Well, we're almost out of time, but we're dealing here with the Carolina Quarterly, and Paul Green was from North Carolina. He also taught at UNC as a professor of philosophy. And Agatha Boyd Adams calls him an interpreter of the South, but you've already mentioned Hollywood, and you've mentioned Europe, um, and she does want to sort of ground him as a, particularly a uh, Southern or North Carolinian writer, but obviously that's that's not true. Can you, can you talk to that at all?
1: I know more about this maybe in regards to Contempo magazine, but that was something they struggled with, with like what is the tie, the bond, the realist quote-unquote yeah. bond to the region and representing things as they were or mm-hmm. as they are, and then where is the room for a uh, wide-ranging experimentation, artistic expression. And I think this is something that we are still thinking about at the Carolina Quarterly as far as like grounding both in and beyond a region. And so I think that Paul Green is super interesting in that he's written and has been well received for his plays that are grounded in this region, but he's actually reaching further outside of the region, and that seems to be where his imaginative reach is happening. Right. Um, I think it's interesting because he also is reaching a little bit outside of time. So the, the The new dramatic form that he made, supposedly, is uh, called the Symphonic Drama, and that is inspired by history, but it brings together music and pageantry kind of from the present moment that he was writing. And being relatively new to this region, I think there's a lot of history that I just haven't had access to, but driving to the Outer Banks for the first time this summer and going over Roanoke Island Mm -hmm. and having this moment of, I just remember learning about Roanoke in grade school, and then... Paul Green actually wrote a symphonic drama about the colony at Roanoke called *The Lost Colony*, and it's still performed today. Um, but that is something that he, if we're talking about things changing or being beyond, but also in the region, it was really collaborative. It incorporated music and like puppetry and pageantry. Um, but he worked on that throughout his life; like he kept changing it. And yeah. so I think that's something that's interesting because it's kind of it's grounded here. It's ungrounded in time, and it's also stylized in a way that is um, pulling from all over. Mm -hmm. So there's this, like, wrapping up of all of these different things, and it feels like those contradictions seem to be the engines that are firing him creatively Mm -hmm. in
0: a lot of ways. Fascinating. Well, the idea of a creative engine post-machine age is probably the best place to end, but I will ask you two questions. The first is, as nonfiction editor, would you have taken Paul Green's piece?
1: I mean, I think it's as we've discussed. It's so dated. Yeah. Uh, I think it's accepting a piece like uh, that about the machine age when we were in the age of uh, big Google and like facial recognition would. Uh, I don't think we can make an argument that the machine creates equality mm-hmm. now. So, yeah. and I I don't think it is particularly sussed out. So no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, Green.
0: <laughs> and then, as nonfiction editor, is there anything you can tell our listeners that you're looking for?
1: Oh, yeah. So we are looking to kind of stretch the boundaries of what nonfiction is. So uh, thinking about, I mean, essays are always great, memoirs are interesting, but playing with the idea of what creative and specifically creative nonfiction looks like. So um, I am encouraging people to send that piece that doesn't quite fit in, in other places because I do think we're a fun corner of the literary world where uh, I don't want to say we're the island of misfit toys, but that feels kind of like what it is, and I kind of I love that. So um, I'm I am looking for pieces that stress the boundaries of of nonfiction and yeah. what that means, and then also yeah the idea the label creative nonfiction.
0: Great. Yeah. Excellent. So send us your toys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for bringing to light Paul Green for us and for being here today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Colin. All right, Bye.
0: That'll do it for this episode of CQ Speaks. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at thecarolinacoorderly.com and follow us at facebook.com slash and on Twitter at NC underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening and to be on the lookout for upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.